Are you a good friend? Are you a good friend? If a good friend is going through a rough patch, tough time, do you reach out? Do you seek to help your friends and encourage them, even at times when your friend can offer you nothing in return? I remember years ago, one comedian noting that we don't have as many real friends as our Facebook profiles claim that we do. He said, it's impossible to have a thousand friends. Post on Friday that you're moving, and whoever responds and offers to help is your friend. Unfriend everybody else. <laughs> While you might disagree with that experiment, we obviously have different kinds of friendships and local, distant friends. I think the comedian's point is well taken. Faithful friends are there for us in times of need. Faithful friends are there for each other in times of need. I think no matter your spiritual beliefs, I think we can all agree that friends are there both in the good times and the bad. So again, what about you? Are you a good friend? Maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a good friend to some. I, I feel like I'm a good friend to my spouse or to a sibling. Maybe you've stayed in touch and sought to be a good friend to a handful of friends over the years. But consider this. Are you a good friend to God? Certainly, God doesn't need us as his friends. He is all-sufficient in himself as the triune God. But would God say that you are one of his faithful friends? Would God say that you are one of his faithful friends? Well, friends, these are some of the questions that we're going to consider this morning as we look at Mark 14 and part of Mark 15 together. I'd encourage you to open your Bibles now to Mark 14, verse 1. Uh, if you do not have a Bible that you brought with you, you can use the black pew Bibles and the pews and chairs in front of you, and you can find Mark 14 on page 902, 902 of the pew Bibles. We're nearing the end of this summer series in the Gospel of Mark, amazed and confused in the presence of Jesus. And this morning, I want us to see that when we are faithless, our friend and king is faithful. When we are faithless, our friend and king is faithful. So my prayer is that you're going to see shades of your own faithlessness in the disciples, but then you will know great hope today because of the faithfulness of our divine friend and king. And finally, as we consider Christ's faithfulness to us, I pray that we will be renewed in our desire to give ourselves to God in devotion, love, and faith. So I've got a two-point sermon for you today to highlight the many contrasts that we see in our lengthy text, once again, uh, this morning, 87 verses. And these two points will largely boil down to these buckets. 
faithlessness, faithfulness. Faithlessness, faithfulness. And two disclaimers before we dive in. Because of the length of the text, as has been the case, I will be summarizing much of what we see here in Mark 14 and 15 instead of reading these verses. I trust that you can read them later or you've even been reading them in preparation for this time. Second, something a little bit different today, we are not going to be following this well-known story in a linear way. That'll drive some of you crazy, but stay with me. (laughs) We're going to jump around in the narrative to highlight the different characters in this divine drama, to show what I think Mark is doing to provide us a contrast. So you're going to do well to keep your Bibles open today so that we don't get lost. Uh, Let's go to the Lord now and ask Him to help us as we prepare to get into His Word. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do pray for Your help by Your Holy Spirit, that You would give us soft hearts uh, to receive Your Word. Lord, that you would clear away distractions that we might hear from you and that we might see Jesus, our friend, our king, our substitute. So, Lord, we we recognize our dependence on you even now, and we pray that this time would glorify the name of our Savior and Lord Jesus. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Point number one, with friends like these, who needs enemies? With friends like this, who needs enemies? This is faithlessness. If you remember from last week, Jesus has some unexpected enemies, the high and mighty religious leaders of his day. He went five rounds with them and embarrassed them on their home court. Now they want to kill him. But Jesus' worst enemy is someone we may have thought was a close friend. Look with me at Mark 14, verse 10. Mark 14, 10. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard this, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. Skip down now to verse 17. 14, 17. When evening came, he, this is Jesus, arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be distressed and say to, to him one by one, Surely not I. He said to them, It is one of the twelve, the one who is dipping bread in the bowl with me. For the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. Finally, look with me at verse 43. Chapter 14, verse 43. While he, that's Jesus, was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, suddenly arrived. With him was a mob, with swords and clubs, from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. His betrayer had given them a signal. The one I kiss, he said, he's the one. Arrest him and take him away under guard. So when he came, immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. 
Well, in 1410, we saw that Judas goes into the enemy's lair and offers his betrayal services. Then, at the Passover meal in 1417, Jesus calls Judas out, I'll bet anonymously. Here's an opportunity at the Passover for Judas to turn away from his evil plan. But by 1443, in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see it's too late for Judas and for Jesus. In the Garden, Judas strikes his final blow against his friend with a kiss. You know, in these texts that I read, Mark notes twice, did you notice, that Judas was one of the twelve. Like, we know that. But he's calling attention to that to show that Judas was an insider. Consider how much time Judas must have spent with Jesus. We only have scratched the surface this summer as we've walked quickly through the Gospel of Mark on all that Jesus said and did. Judas saw all those things and more. Surely, he was amazed, along with the rest of the disciples and the crowds in the presence of Jesus. Judas had seen Jesus' authority, his power, his love, his compassion, and yet Judas' amazement did not result in worship. His familiarity with Jesus did not equal faith. Now, of course, Jesus is not surprised by Judas's betrayal. We, we see that at the Passover meal. But that doesn't mean that Jesus wasn't hurt as a friend, as a human being. Jesus knew all along that this was God's plan, that one of the twelve, that Judas would betray him. But that doesn't mean that Jesus didn't feel the sting of Judas's betrayal. Further, to speak of God's plan, just because this was God's plan all along doesn't mean that Judas isn't a responsible agent in all this. Judas isn't like a victim of fate or a puppet on a string of God's sovereignty. No, Judas is a willing accomplice to the arrest of his friend and teacher. Now, Judas is certainly a unique figure in the storyline of Scripture, and yet I think Judas still serves as a warning to us today. Amazement at Jesus or things of the Lord does not necessarily result in worship. Curiosity or interest in the things of Scripture or religion doesn't necessarily equate with devotion to Jesus. And familiarity with Jesus isn't the same as faith in Jesus. I think you can look like a religious insider. Judas was one of the twelve. You can look very devout. You can even have ministry responsibilities. Judas was the one who took care of all the expenses for Jesus' ministry. But despite Judas's amazement, interest in the Lord perhaps, despite his service 
He was faithless. And we can be too. And only time will tell. Mark doesn't tell us why. He doesn't tell us why Judas betrayed his friend. But in the Gospel of John, we learn that Judas was a thief. So I don't think it's a stretch to see that greed must have been part, at least part of his motivation for the betrayal. I wonder if you remember back to the sermon in Mark 4, or you know the parable of the sower and the soils in Mark chapter 4. Jesus warns of the deceitfulness of riches that are like thorns that can choke out the seed of God's Word in our hearts. Judas didn't heed that warning. What about you? Do you take Jesus' warnings seriously? Or do you largely assume that those warnings are for someone else? Are you on guard against the deceitfulness of sin that is seeking to destroy you? I don't think Judas in verses 10 and 11 just woke up one day and decided, you know what? I have nothing else to do. I think I'm going to betray my friend and master. It was a slow creep as the deceitfulness of riches, maybe envy or fear, wrapped itself around his heart. Our sin is not only seeking to betray us. Our sin can easily cause us to betray Jesus. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're like, I I don't really resonate with Judas. You think, I would never betray Jesus. But I think Judas would have said the same thing at one point. Confidence in our relationship with the Lord isn't the same thing as commitment. Look with me at Mark 14, 27. I think we see this in the disciples. The other disciples, when Jesus predicts that they're going to abandon him, listen to what they say. First, Jesus says in verse 27, then Jesus said to them, all his disciples, all of you will fall away because it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter told him, even if everyone falls away, I will not. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said to him, today, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter kept kept insisting, if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And they all said the same thing. Well, if you're familiar with the story, we know that before the night is over, Jesus' words come true. The disciples' bravado is shown to be false. For when Judas and the chief priests come carrying swords and clubs, they all bail on their friend. Look at Mark 14, verse 50. Mark 14, 50. Then they all deserted him and ran away. And skip down a few verses. Peter seems to rally. Okay, is he going to come through for his friend? Look at verse 54. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the high priest's courtyard. He was sitting with the servants, warming himself by the fire. So does Peter have like a rescue plan that he's got going on for his buddy? 
Well, listen to what happens next to Peter in verse 66. While Peter was in the courtyard below, one of the high priest's maidservants came. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus, the man from Nazareth. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about. Then he went out to the entryway and a rooster crowed. When the maidservant saw him again, she began to tell those standing nearby, this man was one of them. But again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing there there said to Peter again, you certainly are one of them since you're also a Galilean. Then he started to curse and swear, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately, a rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered when Jesus had spoken the word to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Judas betrays Jesus. Peter denies him. All the disciples abandon him in his hour of greatest need. Some friends you've got, Jesus. You know, for the religious leaders, we know that it was out of envy. For Judas, probably greed. Peter, fear. What about us? Can you imagine strong desires, strong feelings of fear, greed, envy, lust, anger, causing you to be faithless to Jesus? Can you imagine that? You know, many of us here, I know many of you are my friends and my brothers and sisters, and we, we say we're committed to the Lord, and we say, you know, even if a gun were held to my head and I was asked to deny Christ, I would not give in. I would remain loyal to Christ. And yet, friends, the best indication of our loyalty to Jesus is not what we say we will do, but what we do. You may say that you would die for your faith in Jesus, just like Peter said in verse 31. But anyone can say that. Lots of people have said that. The question for us today is this. Are you living for him today? Are you following him today? If your boss asks you to lie to protect your job and maybe even the job of someone else's, what would you do? If your family, your extended family, your parents, your siblings, want to treat an unbiblical divorce as no big deal and something that you should accept so that your sibling, who is the guilty party and who has abandoned his spouse, cannot feel judged, and so it doesn't create waves in the family, what would you do? Would you go along with it? No big deal? If a neighbor, good neighbor, good friend, asks you what you think about the LGBTQ+, movement, what would you say? 
You know, I don't, some of you may know that years ago, in another life, I worked for a lobbyist in Washington, D.C. for a couple years. And uh, at one, one time, when I was working there, uh, one of my supervisors asked me to lie on an expense report so he could be reimbursed for a very expensive uh, steak dinner. What do you think I did? What would you do? You can ask me later what I did. <laughs> Friends, we're often faced with questions of who will we serve. And probably in ways that we don't even realize because of the deceitfulness of sin, we rationalize going along with the crowd, not making waves. We side with our own desires because of our fear, because of our envy, because of our greed, rather than stay true to our Savior and Lord. Henson, we may have good theology, but so many of us know the envy of our hearts. We know our greed. We may try to downplay it. Everybody struggles with this, we say. But we know that we have not stood strong for Jesus in moments of temptation. When something appealing appears on our screens, when we're annoyed with our kids, when we're taken advantage of at work, when we're not recognized for our hard work, when something that we love is taken away, we often don't look like faithful followers of Jesus. We can tend to bail on Jesus in these moments of temptation and trial. Are we all that different from the disciples? Are we all that different from Peter and maybe even Judas? We have not been the most loyal friends to Jesus. He would be right, totally justified to bail on us because of our lack of faithfulness to him. Our thoughts, our actions, our words betray us. They betray our true allegiances, and often we're only loyal to one person, and that's ourselves. But praise God, when we are faithless, He is faithful, and that's what we're going to consider second and finally. Second, more than just a friend, the faithful one. Now, we already thought about how Jesus knew one of his friends would betray him. And he tells all his, as he tells all his disciples in 14, 17 through 21. Now, after predicting of his betrayal there at the Passover, let's listen in as Jesus reinterprets the Passover meal based on what he's going to do on Good Friday. So look at, with me at 14, 22. So go back to verse 22. As they, Jesus and his disciples, were eating, Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to them and said, take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. He said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. 
We've heard, if you've grown up in church, you've heard this text, these words many times. This meal is all about relationship. It's all about relationship. Jesus is establishing a new covenant. That is a relationship of promise and hope with these men who will soon abandon him in his hour of greatest need. But in grace, Jesus offers his body and his blood for the very men who will bail on him in just a few hours. Now, Jesus shared this cup as a sign of his covenant faithfulness. This is the steadfast love that endures forever. This was a symbol of it, even when Jesus knew what was waiting for him. You know, to drink this cup with Christ establishes a new relationship, symbolizes a new relationship of faith and grace. And Jesus drank that cup even when he knew that another cup was waiting for him. You know, before Jesus is betrayed and abandoned by his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays. Let's listen in. Look with me at verse 35, 1435. Jesus went a little farther, fell to the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. The hour is the hour of Jesus' coming death. The cup is the symbol of God's wrath that Jesus must drink to satisfy God's justice against sin. Because if there was going to be a new covenant relationship, which Jesus was celebrating with his disciples at the Passover, there must be a sacrifice. There must be a substitute. A righteous and faithful one must stand in the place of the faithless. Now, Jesus cries out with loud cries and anguish that if there's any other way that that cup might pass from him. But in the end, what do we see there? He surrenders himself to the will of the Father in faithfulness to his Father and loyalty to his Father. And he does it for us. He does it because of his love for us. This is the kind of friend Jesus is. When the disciples can't even stay awake with Jesus, he has to tell them three times, this is the hour of my greatest need. He's in deep anguish. Surely they saw that. He had just told them in chapter 13, please stay alert, be watchful, don't fall into spiritual lethargy. And they fail him. But Jesus doesn't fail us. He doesn't fail his disciples. He stays loyal to the Father's will for their salvation. Even when he knows that they will abandon him, he offers himself for his enemies in fulfillment of the scriptures. And when he knows he will betray, be betrayed and denied by some of his closest friends, he offers his body, broken, his blood poured out for the faithless. This is the kind of friend Jesus is. But he's more than a friend. He's more than a loyal and faithful friend. 
We looked at the scene in the high priest's courtyard where Peter is interrogated by a lowly servant of the high priest, and he fails. Jesus is questioned by the high priest a short distance away. Let's listen in to this trial. Look at verse 60, chapter 14, verse 60. Then the high priest stood up before them all and questioned Jesus, don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest questioned him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Peter denied that he even knew Jesus. In fact, did you notice in the, in the interrogation of Peter, he wouldn't even say Jesus' name. But Jesus knows who he is. Jesus doesn't deny himself. Here before the high priest, we see that Jesus is more than a good friend. Jesus confesses that he is the I am. God, Yahweh himself, come to earth and that he was the son of man. The prophet Daniel saw a vision of the coming of the son of man in Daniel 7. Hundreds of years before, well, Daniel was in Babylon. The son of man who is given eternal dominion, glory, a kingdom, and the universal service of the nations that would go on forever. Jesus says, that's who stands before you, to the high priest and the Sanhedrin. Well, we know where that lands Jesus. Jesus' confession, his true confession of his identity brings him as a blasphemer before the Roman authorities. The religious leaders hand Jesus over to Pilate in 15, chapter 15, verse 1, and now listen to the exchange between, Peter and, or between Jesus and Pilate starting in verse 2, chapter 15, verse 2. So Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, you say so. Another way that we could interpret this is, you would do well to consider the question. And the chief priest accused him of many things. Pilate questioned him again, aren't you going to answer? Look how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still did not answer. And so Pilate was amazed. Well, Pilate's amazement at Jesus, like we thought about with Judas earlier, did not result in worship, did not result in Pilate recognizing that here was the king, not just of the Jews, but of the nations. Instead, Pilate caves. He decides to leave Jesus' fate up to the crowd. Let's listen in, starting in verse 6, chapter 15, verse 6. At the festival, Pilate used to release for the people a prisoner whom they requested. There was one named Barabbas who was in prison with rebels who had committed murder during the rebellion. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do for them, as was his custom. Pilate answered them, Do you want me to release the king of the Jews for you? For he knew it was because of envy that the chief priests had handed him over. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he would release Barabbas to them instead. Pilate asked them again, Then what do you want me to do with the one you call the king of the Jews? Again they shouted, Crucify him. 
Pilate said to them, why? What has he done wrong? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. And after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. In this prisoner exchange between Barabbas and Jesus, we have the great and the sweet exchange of the gospel. The faithful one condemned so that the faithlessness, the faithless one and the guilty one can go free. In Barabbas, we find ourselves imprisoned in our sin, guilty before the law of God. We are guilty, just as we confess in the Ten Commandments. How many of those commandments have we broken? We may not have committed murder, but we have sinned. We have broken God's law against the true king. We, we've broken his law in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds. We are guilty before a holy, a good, and a just God. And we deserve the kind of sentencing that Barabbas deserved for his sins. But Jesus takes the place of sinners. Isn't that what we've been celebrating today and singing of? He is crucified. He drinks the cup, and he becomes the Passover lamb in our place. Many of us have heard this message, maybe for most of our lives. In our place, condemned he stood. But how will you respond? How will you respond today? Well, every last man abandoned Jesus. But we have a picture of one who is devoted to Jesus in faith. Turn back with me to Mark 14, verse 3. Mark 14, verse 3. Listen as I read. When he, that's Jesus, was in Bethany, at the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured it on his head. But some were expressing indignation to one another. Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they began to scold her. Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you, and you can do what is good for them whenever you want. But you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. This woman is extravagant and liberal in her affection and devotion to Jesus. The onlookers scold her for the apparent waste. It says it's 300 denarii, that perfume. In today's dollars, we're talking maybe seventy dollars to $80,000. Poured out like liquid money and gone. You can understand the indignation or why she would receive some judgment here. But as we know, as we should know by now in Mark's gospel, Jesus is operating on a kingdom economy. 
He does not judge the way that the world judges. Jesus commends her instead of scolding her for recognizing something that everyone else has missed, who he is and what he's come to do, who this man is and what his mission is. He has come to die. He was going to his death, and this was an anointing before his burial. And that death would become good news. Isn't that what he says? Gospel, good news, that would be proclaimed in the whole world. And this story would be told as an example of devotion and service to the king who came to die for us. And here we are, 2,000 years later, at the ends of the earth, and this story is being told of what it means to be devoted to Jesus when all else bail, when everyone else bails. You know, even if that perfume had cost trillions, it could not compare to the price that Jesus would pay for sinners. Uh, I love how this story is so similar to the woman we considered last week who gave all that she had. It was only two copper coins in devotion and love to to the Lord. And this woman here in chapter 14 gives liberally, scandalously even, because she recognizes that in Jesus there's a friend and a king like none other. Jesus isn't just a friend who's willing to take a bullet for his friends. He was the king of the Jews. He is the king of the Jews, and he's the king of the nations. Uh, the, The Son of Man would one day receive all power and glory and honor and praise because of how he stood in the stead of ruined sinners. And this woman alone in our narrative was ready for that day and gave what she could in devotion to him. Are we responding like this woman? What about us? Will we give ourselves to him in faith? Even if we're scolded, judged by the world, looked down upon by our family and friends? You know, maybe you are here today and you don't identify as a Christian. And we are so glad that you are here with us this morning. You are always welcome. Friend, today is the day. Today is the day to turn from your sin and devote yourself to this one who showed his devotion to you by his death on the cross for sinners like you and me. Please talk to someone before you leave if you don't understand yourself to be a Christian. What would it look like for you to give yourself to the one who gave himself for you, who was raised and who lives even now. Well, friends, we haven't always been good friends, have we? We often choose to serve ourselves instead of sacrificing ourselves for even our good friends. But often we've been the worst to Jesus. Some of us have used his name as a curse. Some of us have kind of pushed him to the margins of our lives, like, oh yeah, what a great teacher, what a historic figure. Many of us here claim that he is our Savior and Lord. But then our faithlessness is 
so often apparent in our credit card statements, in our online browsing history, most of all, in our relationships, and in our words. We are all guilty. We are all deniers and even betrayers. We are like Barabbas, imprisoned, but in a prison of our own making, our own deceitful desires and sin. But what does Jesus say to guilty people like you and I? I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came as the faithful one for the faithless. He came to suffer and die as the punishment in our place. And today, all who see him, who respond like this woman in Mark 14, who are scolded by the world, but entrust themselves to the Savior, will know his commendation. He commends those who recognize who he is and what he has come to do. You can devote yourself to him, your king and your friend in faith today. Jesus is not the friend we deserve, and he isn't the king that we want in our pride, but he is the friend and the king that we need, and he offers himself to you today. Will you bow the knee and devote yourself to him in faithful love? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, who is like you? Your faithful love endures forever. Your faithful love overcomes our faithlessness. Lord, we look at our lives, and if we are honest, we confess that we have not been loyal to you. But Lord, you give yourself to us, the disloyal, the lawbreakers, the envious, the angry, the greedy, the lustful, the proud. And you take the punishment, Jesus, that we deserve. Lord, we pray that you would move our affections, move our hearts, move our hands and our feet and our mouths so that we might be devoted to you. Uh, Lord, like this woman in Bethany, who, is, who gave what she could and was willing to endure the scorn of others because of her devotion to you. So, Lord, help us. We thank you that you do not judge us as our sins deserve, but you have been gracious and faithful to us in your Son, Jesus. And we pray all of this, trusting him in his name. Amen. 
Well, as we have considered today, Christ is the friend and the king that we need because he was faithful when we have been faithless. The reason that our hope is unwavering is not because of our performance, but because of his. And he lives and reigns for us. Now receive this blessing from God's word. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all both now and forever. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.